there's this thing about just teaching through books of the Bible. Um, sometimes you come across passages and you're like, oh, this seems so irrelevant to our lives. What could this possibly mean? And I've actually found that to be very helpful. Because one of the things that the Bible says about sin is effectively, if I can paraphrase the thought, whatever it is that you don't know that you're doing wrong, that's the greatest threat. And the reality of what sin does in our life is it inherently makes us blind to even its existence. We become self-justifying. And so a lot of times, just a steady dose of unchosen scripture is very healthy. And there are other occasions where it just seems like things align in such a way that it's nothing short of providential that we are where we are. And tonight, there is that element to it. As, as we look at this passage, it would be very easy to make the full focus and the primary application of the passage we look at just these things, just politics. But my fear is, my fear is this. My fear is that I would teach you how to recognize a red rose and that you would mistake all other roses even though they're multifaceted even though there's all these other colors. My fear is that if we focus on that tonight, you won't see how tremendously broad the reality of this is. And, uh, and so we're going to talk uh, instead about the, the broad reality because like many passages in scripture, we're talking about the core issues of who humanity is, of what's wrong with humanity, about how that gets made right. And so it's a single, uh, it's a single root, and it grows into a full and flourishing tree with lots of different fruit, of which one, I think, addresses the issues that, we're talk that we were just talking about in our time of prayer. So um, let's just take a look at the passage. It's going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Um, if you had a bi have a Bible, go ahead and open up to there. There should be a Bible in the back of a pew nearby you if you'd like to use that one. And you can use the index at the beginning to find Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, known as 1 Corinthians in the New Testament. The church that Paul is writing to here in Corinth was having a bit of a disagreement. The disagreement had to do with a particular practice, a behavior that they were asking, is this okay for Christians, yes or no? Tell us how to navigate this, uh, this Paul. And instead of Paul just diving in and giving you know, the simple answer of yes or no, instead of him just drawing a line in the sand and saying, this is where the line is, he actually goes underground and focuses first on their motivation. And so he says, you're treating the behavior just on the surface level here, but before we can even talk about that, let's just take this an illustration of making this decision in general. How do you come to the answer of, shall I do this or can I do this, yes or no? And what he shows consistently throughout this passage is that the primary metric for behavior in the Christian life is always filtered through the concept of love. In other words, he challenges the uh, thinking and the decision-making and the theology of the church in Corinth because it's reduced down to right or wrong. 
Now, he's going to deal with the right or wrong issue, but he says, even if it's right, there's a whole lot of other things that have to be done. And what he does is he takes up all of these ways that we generally make decisions, and I would say that they are the horses that we hitch the wagon of morality to, meaning it's very convenient to have these in play and not notice them and then say that it's all about this over here. And so we say, yes, this is right because, and we have our reason, but there's these underlying reasons that are really pulling the wagon. Uh, or no, you can't do this and we have our reason, but we're completely unaware of what's actually putting tension on the reins up front. And so constantly in every passage, he brings us back down to love and the importance of this, that in your decision-making, are you even considering other people? Now, in chapter 9, um, he is making an example of himself and not on the issue at hand. And so the specific issue that was going on in the Corinthian church was, can we eat food that's been sacrificed to another god, to an idol, to one of the pagan religious temples and altars? Here, he spent what we saw last week in the first half of 9 talking about, should I take a paycheck as a pastor? And then he moves on here to his philosophy of evangelism, okay? So he doesn't even, in the passage we'll read tonight, address how we treat one another in the church, but how he navigates his lifestyle with non-Christians, with those who aren't part of the church. Uh, it's not too hard, though, to make the jump from his illustration here to the concept at hand. Um, but... With, with kind of that background in mind, I'd like to, to read it all, and, and first I'll tell you what, what the focus is. Every week, Paul's held up a different aspect of our decision-making and held it up to light and contrasted it with love. And so last week, it was rights. Uh, the week prior, it talked about basically just our desires. I want it. There's nothing wrong with it, so why can't I have it? Um, and before that, even the idea of um, uh, knowledge. Well, I know. I, I'm not ignorant, so I can do this, right? And here, the issue at hand is freedom. The issue at hand is, what does it mean to be free, really? And how do you use that freedom? What is it for? So this is what he says, beginning here in chapter 9, verse 19. He says, for though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. Let's pray. Father, as I often do, I ask tonight for ears to hear that your spirit would be speaking through your word. I pray that you would give us, um, give us the ability to see where this touches on our lives in the particulars. Help us, yes, to understand the general principles, but also help us to see through them directly into our lives, to our friends, to our families, to our neighbors, to our enemies, to our context, and to see what it looks like in practice. And we pray this in your name. Amen. 
the first verse here, verse 19, acts as an introduction. And it's a helpful one because it breaks Paul's thinking into three categories. And what I'd like to do is just move through those three categories tonight. Look again at verse 19. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. What he goes on to say is just an application of that principle in different categories. He says, this is what it looks like in a Jewish context. This is what it looks like in a non-Jewish context. He says, this is how I behave among the weak. And then he kind of comes to the conclusion and ties it all up in the end. So, what's interesting though is if you don't read this carefully, it's a little bit confusing and it makes Paul sound like, um, well first it makes him sound somewhat like a chameleon. Like he just looks around and he does what other people do. And uh, the second thing that's confusing is when you pit them against each other, and so you look at the way he talks about behaving around Jews and the way he talks about behaving around Gentiles, and you try and fit them together, they seem incongruous. They seem like they don't go together at all. And so in the first one, he, he says he's not under the law, and in the second one, he says, though I'm under the law of God. In the first one, he says, I behave as being under the law. And in the second one, he says, I behave as not being under the law. And it's hard to tell here what's steadfast and consistent and complete and what's flexible and changing and, uh, and variable. It's, it's difficult looking at this to try and get it to fit together because it sounds like one big fat contradiction. That's why this first sentence is really helpful because, like I said, it breaks into three sections and we have to understand these sections in order. Notice what he says at the beginning in verse 19. He says, for though I am free from all, that's an aspect of identity. He says, this is who I am. This is where he begins. He says, foundationally, this is the truth of my identity. I am free from all. And then second, we see his behavior look after the comma there, I have made myself a servant to all, right? That's not who he is, he's free. But in his freedom, he's made himself a servant. And then finally, it gives us the purpose. Why are you doing that, Paul? He says that, at the end of 19 there, that I might win more of them, okay? So we see identity, we see behavior, and then we see the purpose, the intention, the motivation. And what he does, as I said, in the next following verses is he just walks through those things. And he shows how they all play out. For us to really get at this, we need to kind of deal with them one at a time. And so let's take the idea of identity first. First, what he says here is that he is free. Okay? And he's utilizing language here that Paul often uses to speak of identity in Christ. Okay? The identity of freedom. And so, for example, in another place, uh, he says where the spirit of the Lord is, in other words, those who have received God's gift of the spirit through Jesus Christ, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Jesus himself said, for whoever the son sets free shall be truly free. Okay, and so freedom is a primary way of thinking about the salvation offered in Jesus Christ. But if we just stop there, we'll miss what's really going on. And so a couple of elements. First off, verse 19 is not the beginning of this conversation, right? In fact, you can tell that just because it opens with the word for. This is a continuing thought. And so one aspect of this freedom he's talking about actually involves the fact that he's not taking a paycheck. What he says is, I'm free from all men, 
And if you read back into the last passage, the freedom he's talking about is the fact that he's not under the thumb of anybody making payments. So nobody can come to Paul and say, hey, I'm bothered by your behavior. I'm disturbed by it. If you don't change your ways, I'm going to withdraw my support, which unfortunately, I have to tell you, is a thing, even in the church, right? And Paul says, I'm free from that, right? I am not... I am not accountable or manipulatable by any outside forces. He says one of the reasons he works with his own hands is so that he can have freedom here. But there's something deeper here that Paul is referring to. And it's the most noticeable in his first uh, statement. Notice what he says in verse 20. He says, to the Jews I became as a Jew. I cannot tell you how surprising and important that little word as is tonight. Because who is saying it? If you're not familiar with the Apostle Paul, he is Jewish. Okay, so it's surprising off the bat that he says, I became like a Jew to the Jews. Okay, not only is he Jewish, but he's very Jewish. I mean, he became a Pharisee. So we're not talking about a nominal or an irreligious Jew. Okay, he became a Pharisee and devoted himself to the memorization to the proclamation, and to being obedience to the Old Testament law. He was committed to it. In fact, we find that he studied under the feet of a rabbi named Gamaliel, who is the premier teacher of Judaism in Paul's day. He can trace his lineage back to the tribe of Benjamin, which even at this time was becoming a pretty rare thing because of the dispersion uh, in the Babylonian exile, some of the Jews came back not knowing their exact lineage. Well, yes, I'm Jewish somewhere, but he's like, I'm a Benjamite. He knows all of these things, and he's devoted to it. And now he looks back on that as a Christian, and he says, that's not who I am. Now, there's another piece of this puzzle that's kind of surprising, and it's the fact that there is a very clear continuity between the Old Testament and the New, between Judaism and Christianity. Let me just remind you tonight that Jesus was Jewish, and he was the Messiah to the people of Israel, and he understood his whole ministry as being unto that house of Israel. And when he pointed to prophecy, he found the prophecies of his coming in the Jewish scriptures. And even when he pointed to himself and he said, I did not come to abolish the law, the Jewish law, but to fulfill it, the Jewish law, he defined his own identity in that sense. Okay. So what in the world does Paul mean here when he says that he's not a Jew, when he says that when he's with Jews, he becomes like them? Clearly, clearly, Paul sees a tremendous amount of discontinuity between who he was and who he is. You see, before we get to the issue of behavior and decision-making in different contexts, before we get to how we treat this decision-making paradigm, you have to begin with who you are. You have to begin with identity. And just recognize that that is a massive vote when it comes to how you behave and how you defend your behavior. So Paul doesn't say here, I behave like a Jew because I am a Jew. Nor does he say here, I behave like a Gentile because I am a Gentile. And like I said, just recognize tonight how much identity shapes who you are. Just think of the phrase, I'm a blank, and how much play it has in your own life. Okay? There is national identity. I'm an American. 
There is cultural identity. There is uh, work identity, right? There is economic class identity. There is philosophic identity. I'm a pacifist, right? All of these things. Now, for Paul, of all people, not just an armchair pacifist, right, but somebody who's devoted to the cause. In fact, when Paul becomes a Christian, you know what that day looks like in the first half of that day? He is so devoted to Judaism, he is trying to wipe out Christianity. He sees it as a total heresy, and so he is willing to throw Christians in prison and even put them to death if he can just get rid of this horrible lie about the risen Jesus Christ. It's that Paul who becomes a Christian. If you're not a Christian tonight, here's, here's something you have to understand about what Christianity is. It's not just a label that you can add on to the other labels. It's not just an identity that can be rank and file with the other identities. Paul is a Christian and a Jew. And this is not even in this sense a hierarchy where you have to say, well, I'm a Christian first and then a Jew. What I'm, what I'm telling you here is Paul sees salvation, the Christian life, becoming a Christian as uh, as an eradication of all other identities. You can read this in other places. That's why he says in the church, in, in the Christian life, it's neither Jew nor Gentile, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. It's not what men or woman, but our identity is in Christ. Okay? What this means for you if you're not a Christian is you can't just take on Christianity and add it to your life. You can't just add it to the list of the other things you are. And I would say this as well, that you can't be swift to take who you were and graft it back in and just add uh, Christian as an adjective. Well, I'm a Christian socialist, or I'm a Christian Republican, or I'm a Christian whatever it is. You can't be swift to do that. You see, even in Paul navigating these things, what we'll see is there are things that are unflexible. That's why in one sense he can say, I'm under the law, and in another sense he can say, I'm not under the law. We'll see that in a second. There are things that are unflexible, and then there's things that are flexible. But the problem is, if you don't know what it looks like to be a Christian, if you don't know the reality of your identity in Christ, then you're going to graft things in and make two mistakes. And one of them is you're going to enculturate your Christianity and turn it into something else. And the other is you're going, to, um, you're going to not understand the fullness and the depth of the reality of what Christ has done in your life, of the reality of what Christ calls us to in behavior and in philosophy. And this is really important because what happens if you don't have this identity? If you don't have this identity, then you also don't have any message. Your message just becomes another thing that's flexible. You see, I mentioned the chameleon earlier, and the reality is the chameleon doesn't turn green because he appreciates the beauty of green. He turns green because it's safe. And what's going on for Paul here is not that he tries to downplay his Jewishness so Gentiles don't beat him up, or that he tries to upplay his Judaism to make the gospel attractive. In fact, we'll, we'll find it's just the opposite. Let me give you just one illustration of how this plays out in your own Bible. 
In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, John speaks specifically to an audience of people who have, like any other identity group, their own lingo. And so when he says in verse 1, in the beginning was the word, the logos, he is speaking the language of a particular people, a people who grew into what we call the Gnostics, okay? And this idea of the logos having a part to play in the creation of humanity and the forming of the world, they really jived with that idea. And so for a Christian to write in this language, they're attracted to because they're like, oh, that's what I believe too. But when you hit verse 14 and it says the Logos became flesh, suddenly it's like a slap in the face to the Gnostics. Because the idea that, that God, the eternal and perfect, could have anything to do with weak and wicked humanity, they believed that the only reason we had a physical universe at all is an emanation of God, had another emanation, and so on and so on, and so far that it was diluted, and it was one of those, you know, a million removed emanations that finally accidentally created physical matter, okay? So for the God, the Logos at the beginning, for him to take on flesh, that is an uh, uncomprehendable idea for the Gnostic. But notice what he doesn't do. First off, he doesn't speak in, in a, if you will, a Christian lingo. He puts it in words that they can understand, but he still has a message, he uses the culture to confront the culture. Now, what I'm trying to say tonight is, like I said, you cannot know what it looks like to be a Christian as an adjective, identity, fill in the blank, if you don't understand the fullness and the reality of Christian. Look at how he does this in this context. So, for example, he says, to the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews, and then he clarifies and he says, I'm talking about those under the law. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. But look at the parenthetical here. Though not being myself under the law. That's identity, right? Isn't it? He says, I'm not under the law. He says, I became as one, right? That's phase two. But phase one here, identity, he says, I am not under the law. What does Paul mean by this statement? And it gets a little bit harder because notice how he talks about the Gentiles in verse 21. To those outside the law, I became as one outside of the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. And so here he says, I'm not under the law. And here he says, I am under the law. Clearly what he's doing here is trying to shave off two misunderstandings at opposite ends. But ultimately, this is what he's expressing. Okay? That the law... The Old Testament law is no longer how Paul finds his approval before God. It's no longer his access point to God. It doesn't determine his behavior. And there is, the, in, in the Bible, when it talks about the law, there is a couple of different ways it talks about it. So, for example, sometimes the law just means the Pentateuch. In other words, I'm talking about or quoting from the first five books of the Bible. Sometimes the law means the entirety of the 613 commandments that are recorded in the Old Testament. Sometimes the law means the entirety of the Mishnah and the Talmud that grew around that to provide interpretation and application of those things. And sometimes the law, like it does here, is referring to these aspects of the Old Testament law that are uniquely written for the nation of Israel before the coming of Jesus. When Jesus comes and he says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. 
What he's saying there is that there are aspects of the laws that's recorded in the Old Testament that are completely accomplished in Jesus Christ and therefore no longer a requirement for us as Christians. And the New Testament talks about this in a lot of different ways, and it's an important discussion for two reasons, okay? The first is, because if you don't understand this, it's going to be very easy to accuse the church or to confuse yourself and say, don't we just kind of pick and choose what we want to obey from the Old Testament? Aren't we just cherry-picking things? And so we say, yeah, wear whatever you want, eat whatever you want, but this behavior is out of line. I mean, they're in the same book, sometimes in the same chapter. Why, why do we do that? And the reason is not because we cherry-pick, but because Jesus says this aspect, this is completely accomplished. And so for us to continue to do those things would not to be to entrust ourselves to the reality of who Jesus is. Think of it this way. The New Testament says that much of what was required in the Old Testament was like shadows in comparison to realities. And so they had feasts that they had to maintain with very rigid practices. And the New Testament says all of those things were just pictures pointing to Jesus. There were sacrifices and a temple and, uh, and a priesthood. And the New Testament says all of that was pictures pointing towards Jesus. To the degree that unique of all the religions of the world, the Christians came and said, oh, we don't have a temple. We are the temple. Right? We don't have a place where sacrifices are done. Jesus was the final and total sacrifice. We no longer need to. And so the reality that Paul is recognizing here is that those things are dealt away with. And so in Judaism, in the circles that he deals with, are now just cultural customary. And so he says, my identity is not found in these things anymore. On the other hand, look at what he says to the Gentiles. He says, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Now, here's something you have to understand about the Greek language here. He says, to the anumos, I became anumos. And then he says, but I'm not really anumos. He uses the same word over and over again. And a literal translation would be lawless, okay, without law. Now, do you understand how that word has two different uses? Okay. Sometimes when we talk about lawless, we're talking about somebody who is a rebel, right? Somebody who, is, who doesn't keep the law at all, who doesn't find any means for obeying it. He is lawless. But he, there's also the sense, like your Bible probably translates it as being uh, without the law or outside the law. And so Paul says here there's a sense where he behaves around Gentiles outside that law, without the law, and then he clarifies, just so we get it, I'm not saying that I live a lawless life. Now, that's actually really interesting for the conversation to the, uh, to the church in Corinth, because remember, the issue at hand was food sacrificed to idols. In other words, when there's a feast at the temple, can I partake of that feast? And it wasn't just religious, it was also social, it was also political. There was no separation of church and state in the Roman Empire. Um, you know, even politics was bound up in the fact that Caesar is Lord, which is a title of divinity. Even Augustus, right, the August one, is a title of divinity. There was a recognition that, that Caesar was God. And so these things are, are all entangled together. But what's interesting is Paul, after saying he behaved 
with the Gentiles as one without law, in chapter 10, he's going to say, by the way, don't. Don't eat at the temples. Don't participate in the sacrifices of idols. What's going on here? What he's recognizing stems back from that concept of identity. He identifies as a Christian and therefore seeks to do God's will. He identifies as being subject to God and therefore is subject to God. But what he's emphasizing here is cultural. And here's something that we have to understand. Religion is inherently cultural. Okay? You can look around this room and see a good deal of tradition, can you not? And not all of it is our tradition. The scary thing is human beings are inherently religious, but now we have this category of the non-religious, and so they assume that they're not subject to culture. But culture is just something that human beings make, and it's not positive or negative unless it becomes ultimate. What Paul is saying here is that his identity in Christ is so clear that he can tell the difference between being under the law and not being under the law. And on the other hand, he can tell the difference between being lawless and being lawless. And it might sound confusing to you tonight, but just just wrestle it down to this basis. He's convinced of the difference between truth and commandment and practice and custom. He knows where that line is. In that identity, he's then free to open his hand and change his behavior in other places. Okay? For the Gentiles and for the Jews, Christianity comes in and can point to some things and confirm it and affirm it and say, yes, this is the truth. If you don't believe that, just read Paul's sermon in Acts chapter 17 when he speaks to the men of Athens. He does just that. He says, you're right about these things. But Christianity, if it is the ultimate truth, also comes into every culture and confronts it. And what I'm saying tonight is that Paul sees the difference. He can navigate these things collectively because he knows what Christianity is. Can you understand the difference here between adapting Christianity to a culture and grafting a culture into Christianity? Effectively, that's the difference of what we're talking about here. What Paul understands is that wherever the identity it is, wherever you came from as a Christian, that you have to lay that aside and learn what this is, and then you can pick up and integrate. Then you can pick up and deal. Then you can respond to. And so the identity here is solid, And therefore, it gives him the ability to be flexible. So he says, I'm totally and completely free, and I've used that freedom to make myself a slave. Now, in a culture that's obsessed with with the phrase or with the word freedom like we are, it's almost intolerable to hear this. It's like, but isn't that what freedom is for? To throw off the chains of slavery. And Paul says, yeah, but there's also an advantage of making yourself a servant. And you cannot, you cannot do that until you know and enjoy the reality of the freedom that he's talking about. But once you have, he says, I've laid that aside. 
Here's, here's what this looks like practically. It means that when Paul walks into a city or walks into a context or hangs out with a person, the metric that he's using is, how can I be the most accommodating of this person without changing the message, without changing the reality? What things here are flexible? And he says, I'm willing to do that. He says, all of my freedom just gives me the means to make myself the servant of all. And so here's what it looked like with the Jews. It means that Paul, when he was in Israel, when he was with the Jews, with the Jews when he went to synagogue, when he was ministering among, uh, among Jews, he ate kosher. It means, as we're told in the book of Acts, that he took a vow and even paid for four young Jewish men to take their vow. It means that when he took Timothy alongside with him, knowing that Timothy <coughs> came from a Jewish lineage, had him circumcised. That's a big step, just to be clear. If we're going to talk about freedom, I mean, I, I don't want to be goofy or grotesque or any of these things, but I just want you to recognize that Paul is willing to be circumcised. But there's one that I think is more important. Paul maintained his fellowship in the synagogue and with the Jewish people as a nation. In fact, in one place in the book of Acts, while he's on trial under Jewish leadership, he calls out to his brethren, the Pharisees. He says, I'm on trial today because of a doctrine we all believe in, the resurrection. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that three times he was beaten by the leaders of synagogues, received a, a lashing, if you will. Now, to be clear here, the Jews are not a, a governmental authority, right? In Israel, Israel is being ruled right now by the overloads, overlords of Rome, and the first thing they did when they came in was took away their right to capital punishment. You can just read the Gospels and see this playing out. That's why they need Pilate to put Jesus to death, because they can't. And they couldn't just grab any Roman citizen or Roman centurion and beat them. It was only the ones who subjected themselves to the Jewish community, right? Who were willing to bear the punishment of a heretic or of a malcontent or these types of things. Three times Paul takes that on, okay? See, the problem with, with passages like this is we get bound up using it as an excuse to do fun things or, or using it as a, as a means to justify dumb things. Paul is not saying here that he took on skinny jeans or got a tattoo, you know, or, or, you know, ordered an extra beer or these types of things. That's not the issue at all. Most of what Paul's thinking about here is negative. These are the things that he didn't do or the things that he knew that would bother people and so he didn't not do them even though they weren't important. That here's, here's a good way to think about it. Earlier in the letter, Paul says that the gospel itself is a stumbling block. Meaning that the message that Christ died to save sinners, it trips people up. It's offensive. In fact, he says to the Jews it's offensive. And he says to the Greeks it's foolishness. And so both of these camps are eventually going to have to come to terms with the fact that A, you were a sinner in need of salvation. B, there's nothing you can do to save yourself. And C, the only way out of this is going to be God's mercy because all of your punishment was put on the shoulders of Jesus. What Paul is so 
intentionally doing here is making sure that nobody trips before they trip there. Removing anything that's unessential so that people who don't have that essential aspect don't go, oh, okay, there's nothing for me here. So they're not overly offended. To the degree that Paul was willing to maintain fellowship at the cost of punishment and discipline. That's what we're talking about here. I don't know if there's ever been a people alive who was better at making unessential things essential than Americans. And right now, we have caught that disease so badly that we have, you know, one of the oldest laws of the internet, and I forget who it's named for, but I remember the principle. The longer that a conversation goes on online, the possibility of a reference to Hitler increasingly grows to one. Okay? Meaning it's only a matter of time until we go to our only extreme example to call these things out. And I'm not just talking about presidential elections where some of you have those fears. I'm talking about GMOs. Okay? I'm talking about if you recycle. I'm talking about how you feel about the Walking Dead season premiere. Okay? Those conversations have that same reference in there and you know it. Paul here is able to navigate that. And more importantly, to take the unessential stuff and say, I don't care about that at all. Why? What is his motivation here? Clearly, it's not to avoid the danger of being rejected. Paul knows rejection. It stones him outside the city. And when he wakes up, you know, from his possible head injury, he just dusts himself off and gets back to work. Paul is not afraid of death. In fact, as he's sitting in a prison because of his ministry to Jesus, he thinks to himself, you know, it's hard for me to decide if I'd like to die at the hand of Nero when, you know, I go to court if he wants to take my life or stay. He says, I'm not sure which I would really choose. What's the reason here? Over and over again, he uses the phrase win. I think that's a fascinating word for Paul to use here because that's another thing our culture is obsessed with. Winning, winning the argument, winning our piece of the pie, winning our rights, winning our freedoms, winning these things. And Paul says, there's only one win, only one win that motivates me, only one race that I'm running. He says, I do all of this that I might win some of them. I do all of this, and he clarifies for us at the end there. He says, um, in verse 23, I do all this for the sake of the gospel, or sorry, in verse 22, to the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. He's willing to lay aside every unessential so that there might be the possibility of them becoming Christians. Now that last illustration is interesting because weak is not an identity that anyone likes to take on. What does he mean, to the weak I became as weak? In fact, he doesn't say as weak. He says, to the weak I became weak. It hits you a little bit harder. But let me just give you one illustration of how this probably was playing out in the church in Corinth. You see, Corinth was obsessed with having the right teacher. Today we would call them a guru, right? And there were these touring teachers and philosophers who would come and at a price teach you their view of the world, instruct you in their way. And the reality was that this was such a status symbol that they were pri uh, priced exorbitantly because paying the price became part of the status. 
kind of like if you've ever heard parents complain about sending their kids to Harvard and how expensive it is. It's not really a complaint. It's a boast. So what this means for Paul, who refuses to take their money and is also a blue-collar tent maker, is that he's identifying with a weakness that that culture does not like. He, you're, you have to say, yeah, you know, the guy who taught me everything I know and I owe my whole life to, he makes tents down on the corner. But there's another way to view that scenario. For the weak, those who were accounted as nothing, the blue-collar worker, Paul has put himself directly and intentionally in their lives. Paul has chosen against a, uh, a relatively easy financing of his ministry for a place that puts him in direct line with people he can minister to against status against economic place he has to now identify as one of the weak and he says you're darn right I identify with the weak I became weak so that I might reach them here's how this plays out for missionaries if you go into a third world country and you live your first world life there's no ministry there. And so that means that many missionaries walk into a world and they downgrade their quality of life. Not because they can't afford it. Not because they can't just go home and live it in America. But intentionally to put them in the lives and in the community of the people they're trying to reach. And I think all of us tonight would say, obviously, until you remember that the mission field is right here. And Paul, this was just his normal behavior everywhere. Clearly also he's referring to the weak of conscience. Those who had silly scruples and feared that, uh, maybe even superstitiously, that bad things would happen. You know what that looks like in most human behavior? It looks like mocking. There is this belief right now that says the best way to deal with somebody who has a foolish concern or conscience is just to flaunt your freedom in front of them not Paul he says I don't care about this thing it's unimportant listen to what he says again verse 22 to the weak I became weak that I might win the weak I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some do you hear the repeated all there that touches the whole table he says, I've done all things for all people that I might by all means save some. He says, there's no cost too high. Once again, winning for Paul here is not winning an argument. Winning for Paul here is not winning your freedoms or enjoying the comforts that you've so earned or these types of things. He says, all of that stuff is irrelevant. I've laid it all aside so that by any means I might have the opportunity to share Jesus in a comprehensible and understandable way. Listen to how he finishes it here in verse 23. He says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. What does he mean here when he says that I might share with them in its blessings? He means that the gospel is worth sharing. He means that the reality of salvation is something that we want others to partake in. I don't know what preacher said it last century, but one of them said this. He said, anyone who's truly bound for heaven won't want to go alone. And Paul 
wants to bring these people into the participation of the blessings of the gospel. He wants them to taste and see that the Lord is good. This is his driving motivation in life. So let's put the three elements together again. His identity is drastic. I am a Christian. Christ is my Lord and Savior. I live in light of those truths, and I live in accurate portrayal of those truths, and this really shouldn't be a surprise that this leads to number two of adaptation. Because Jesus became a human being. Right? He became like us so that we could hear, so that we could see, so that we could know. Do you want to know why we're reading a Bible in English and not in Hebrew and Greek? It's because of the incarnation. Do you want to know why if you travel all over the world and you look at Christianity, you will find the same Christianity and it'll look completely different? It's because of the incarnation. Do you want to know why Paul is driven to lay aside any stumbling block except for one? It's because he's a direct recipient of that. Because Jesus didn't just become a man, he became a Jew. He came to Paul's neighborhood. He spoke Paul's language. He lived under the same Jewish law that they all did. And because of that, Paul has become a participant in the gospel. He now partakes of it. As we take communion, realize that there is no greater, no greater motivation for loving your neighbor. No greater motivation for laying aside your freedoms. No greater motivation than the fact that God has done that for you. Let me put this in, in a political light. Republicans are the swiftest to maintain that their platform is Christian. Their platform is Republican. And they're listening to half of who Jesus was. Democrats don't always identify themselves with Jesus, but they often rightly point out where Jesus agrees with them. But they ignore the other half. And you cannot be a Christian Democrat or a Christian Republican or a Christian Green Party or a Christian Democratic Socialist to those of you who are under 25. Okay? You cannot until you understand what it means to be a Christian. And if you come to Christianity content to carve out its doctrines and to shape its Jesus in the form of your own Savior, then you're forgetting the most freeing reality of what Christianity teaches. You're wrong, and that's okay. And what will happen if you forget that if you check that at the door, if you're unwilling to start at the beginning and say that everything you know is wrong and submissively and humbly present yourself to God and say, show me the truth. If you're unwilling to do that, all you will have left is an imaginary God who never disagrees with you. All you will have left is a partial truth, which is false. That's what partial truth means. But when you do, when you have that identity down, when you understand that place, you can navigate with flexibility 
you can both affirm and confront consistently, knowing that no culture being man-made stands as being perfect or stands as being completely marred beyond representing the truths of the world we live in. And you can be so confident and so comfortable in your identity that the unessentials you can just lay aside and say, it's unimportant. Let me read this last two verses again, and then we'll pray. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for the places where we've made our identity a platform. And we've used it as a place of critique and criticism as, as others. We've flamboyantly waved it around as being the essential and defining aspect of who we are. We've said this label gives me meaning. And what you've offered us freely in Jesus Christ is so much better. It's an identity that can't be broken or shaken. It's an identity that is the only identity that is full enough and complete enough to reflect your character. It's an identity that gives us wisdom, even if the world calls it foolish. And it's also an identity that drives us to love our neighbor, to lay aside any obstacle to them understanding and hearing and comprehending the gospel. It gives us the ability in our own conscience to navigate decisions in a way that is freedom. So free that we're not even chained to our freedom and can lay it aside as necessary. pray once again as I prayed at the beginning of the service, show us where this is untrue of us. Show us the places in our life where we're making too big of a deal about little things and not a big, a deal, big enough deal about Jesus and about other people. Fill us with your spirit. Teach us your truth. Conform us into the image of your son. Pray this in your name. Amen.